You may be seated. But don't get too comfortable. Because there's way too much good stuff in Psalm 41 that we're going to look at in some detail this morning. Before we do that, though, I, I just have to say this isn't part of my script, but I leaned over to Debbie and I said, oh my gosh, the, the, the musicians this morning, what a picture of apprenticeship. Did you see that? And that's really why we're here. We want to be apprentices like uh, Travis's young son as he's playing there with really the maestro and learning by doing. Learning by doing. And that's another reason why we're here this, this morning. Are you familiar with social media? Face, Facebook. I, I'm not on Facebook, never will be, but Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram. I am on those two, by the way. Uh, maybe you've seen when someone posts a, a personal question or they make a strong or sometimes a funny statement and then they add the disclaimer asking for a friend. When you know in reality, they're asking for themselves. Well, David seems to do this a lot in the Psalms. He often uh, writes using third-person pronouns, and you're not quite sure where he's headed with that, but then he switches unexpectedly into the second person, or as we'll see this morning, into the first person. And so he repeats this practice once again here in Psalm 41. I'd invite you to open your Bibles to that passage so that you can follow along. Some of the passage will also be projected up on the screen uh, behind me, but uh, it would be good for you to have it in front of you as well. David lived in a broken world, as we do. Every psalm teaches us something about both the character of God on the one hand, but also about the posture of God's people on the other hand, those of us who are living uh, in the tensions of this broken world. The scope of the topics uh, within the Psalms, as we've seen so far this summer, the scope is expansive. They include things like praise and lament and thanksgiving and penitence and wisdom, uh, even the foolish worldview of, of the wicked. Questions, sometimes even accusations directed toward God. Curses. Prophecies about a coming Messiah, instruction, admonition, etc. Basically, authentic life issues that we all face in the tension that we live within this real world. We also hear many different voices in the Psalms. We, we hear the voice of God. We hear the voice of the psalmist speaking to God. We hear the voice of the psalmist speaking to God's people. We hear the voice of the psalmist speaking to his own soul. We even hear the voice of the psalmist speaking to the wicked, and we'll see that again this morning. We even see the voice of the wicked themselves. But in each voice, we hear uh, the, uh, the authenticity and sometimes shocking honesty of those voices. As Pastor Scott has said numerous times already this summer, Psalms gives us a language whereby we can face the tensions of life and whereby we can worship God effectively. Now, many of you might assume that the Psalms were all written by David, by King David. However, he only wrote about half, just under half, 73 to be exact, of the 150 Psalms. Other people wrote Psalms, and we're about to get into that in the next few weeks. Solomon wrote a couple Psalms. Moses wrote a Psalm. 
people called sons of Korah. In fact, next week we'll be looking at a psalm written by the sons of Korah and others, as well as many anonymous psalms. When we sing through these psalms, as we've been doing this summer, you know, we, we slow down life's pace. That's one of the benefits of coming together in worship, is we slow down life's pace, and we can truly engage the full progression of the psalm. We've already seen that this morning, as Arthur led us in singing through Psalm 41. These songs express our prayers and our thoughts and emotions to God, but... At the same time, they form our thoughts and emotions and character before God. So when we sing, our hearts, our emotions are are engaged. And as a result, God's Word gets embedded in our minds. I'd like us to make what I would call our first pass through the 13 verses of Psalm 41. So follow along with me as I... Read through Psalm 41 for the first time. David here writes, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the days of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. I'd invite you to Highlight in your Bibles or maybe jot down in a journal or a a piece of note paper three words. We're going to come back and revisit these three words in those first two verses. Blessed, considers, and poor. Verses 3 through 5. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me. For I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die? And his name perish. I'd invite you to underline that term, that phrase, I have sinned against you. Again, we'll come back to that. We'll look at that. Verses 6 through 7. And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. And when he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. Verses 8 and 9. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. We'll come back and revisit that phrase, close friend, as well. On to verse 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. And then the last couple of verses before this benediction, verses 11 and 12. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Again, we'll come back and focus on some of those verses. The benediction, which has already been uh, sung, but bears repeating, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. 
Now, if you have your Bible open in front of you, I want you to look at the beginning of the next psalm, Psalm 42. And there should be a heading in front of that. And that heading should read something like this. It's very simple. Book 2. Which gives us a clue that Psalm 41 is the end or the conclusion of Book 1. In fact, it's the final psalm in this first collection. And it's a fitting conclusion to this collection of Primarily David's songs and prayers. Now, I want to do something a little bit different this morning. For some of you, you'd say, well, that's not different at all, Tim. I want to, in a sense, step out of the pulpit, and I want to invite you to step with me into the classroom. I'm much more comfortable teaching than I am preaching anyways. And I I ran this by Pastor Scott several weeks ago, and I said, you know, I I think our people need to realize the structure of psalms and how they how they flow together, how they're how they're assembled. I think it will make a difference on how we understand the psalms. And we both agree that today would be a good time to do that as we get to the conclusion of of book one. There are five books within the larger book of psalms. Now, those of you that are taking notes, I know this is going to sound counterintuitive. I've just asked you to step into the classroom with me, but I'm going to encourage you not to take too many notes. You can download these slides. They'll be available on our website tomorrow. So but what I want you to see right now is how this flows together. Each of these five books ends with a benediction. Now, we're not sure whether, in this case, David wrote this benediction or whether the editors who put this together wrote these benedictions. But I want you to see the the progression as we go through this. In fact, uh, the book of Psalms in our present uh, order was most likely put together by uh, men who worked in the temple, and it was done at a later time, um, taking David's Psalms, Solomon, Moses, and others, and compiling them in such a way um, as sort of a hymn book or sort of a collection of poems for use, use as worship within the temple. I want you to notice at the end of this book one, this last uh, verse 13, which we've already read a couple times, is the benediction for not only this Psalm 41, but it's a benediction to the whole book. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Book two is a collection of 31 Psalms that ends at the end of Psalm 72, with a little bit longer benediction. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Book 3 has 17 psalms and an abbreviated benediction in Psalm 89:52. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Book 4... Also 17 psalms, very similar benediction. And then finally, book 5, 44 psalms from 107 through 150. And what's interesting about the conclusion of this book is that there are actually, uh, there's a whole section of psalms that serve as a benediction, starting in Psalm 146. But I want us to focus on Psalm 150. It's, It's only six verses long. But in those six verses, the word praise is mentioned no less than a dozen times. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And this concludes not only that psalm, but also all of the psalms together. 
So these five books of the Psalms, the way they progress, really remind us of the five books of the Torah, or what we might call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Psalms were written to model and pattern after the books of the Torah. Now, the word Torah simply means instruction or law. So you could say that the Psalms are like singing through the law. It's like the law put to music. It's God's law framed as an act of uh, praise and worship. Now, again, I don't know about you, but that adds a whole dimension to our understanding of the Psalms as we continue to progress through them this summer. There are some uh, great resources available out there, and I'm going to call your attention to two. For some of you, looking at this, it doesn't make sense at all. For others, you've seen this before. There is a local uh, word-based ministry here in Portland called uh, The Bible Project, and they do wonderful teaching videos on all books of the Bible and a lot of biblical themes and words as well. Uh, this evening at about 6 o'clock, those of you that are on our, our email blast are going to receive an email from me. And in that email are going to be two links to two different resources produced by the Bible Project. Uh, th- these, the links are to two short videos. One is called Explore Psalms and the other is called The Art of Biblical Poetry. At the end of the Explore Psalms, this is what you'll end up with. But literally the video is is that chart, that diagram being drawn out even as it's being explained. These videos are appropriate for children, they're great for young people, and certainly they're good for adults as well. Okay, let's step back out of the uh, pulpit and and get back into, uh, uh, step back out of the classroom rather, the lectern, and get back into the pulpit here. Uh, Let's go back to Psalm 41, but with that larger backdrop kind of in mind. Here's the context for Psalm 41. David is at an extremely low point in his life. Now, we're not sure at what point in his life this was. It could have been at the end of his life. I personally think it was sometime much earlier, probably after uh, his son Solomon had stolen the kingdom. Uh, He's sick. He's being slandered by malicious enemies. He's surrounded by false friends. He's even betrayed by one of his former counselors, most likely Ahithophel. But at the same time, David is aware of his own sin and his need for forgiveness. And so put that all together, and it's a, it's a sorry state of affairs. But fortunately, it's not all doom and gloom. In fact, for me, the key to understanding Psalm 41 is found in the last couple of verses, verses 11 and 12. Let's read that again. By this I know that you delight in me, My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. You delight in me. The NASB and the NIV translations use the word pleased. God, you are pleased with me. The King James uses an old English term favorist. Thou favorist me. You know, here at, uh, at New Life, it's, it's in our weekly bulletin, it's on our website. You know that our mission statement is to engage those disconnected from God so they delight in Him through Jesus. And that is a theme of many of David's psalms. It's part of this psalm as well. But in a sense, verse 11 flips the script 
And David is saying, we're able to delight in God because first and foremost, He delights in us. And so that's what I want our our attention to be focused on this morning. I want you also to notice that he says here in, in verse 11, by this I know. He's not talking about some kind of information in his noggin about God and about how God might think towards him, but rather he says, I know experientially. The term that's used there is, David is saying, I have hands-on experiential knowledge with this fact. So therefore, I'm confident. I have confidence that's been gained by experiencing God, which in turn results in deep-seated joy. God's delight, and I'll put in brackets, in me, because I don't quite yet want to get too personal about that. You'll, You'll personalize it enough as we go through here. But I believe this is what David is saying. God's delight creates confidence and joy. Why joy? Well, if you go back to verse 1, he begins with the term for joy. We use we translate it as blessed, but literally that term should be translated as um, outrageous, exceeding, abundant joy. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 1, verse 1. It's used again in Psalm 32, 1. It's used again in Psalm 33. It was used last week. Pastor Travis was here. He used it in Psalm 40. It speaks of wholeness or health or prosperity or balance in one's life. In other words, it's experiencing life as God intended us to from the very beginning. Yet, we live in tension. We live in a world full of tension. So it's God's delight in me creates confidence and joy, but in the midst of sin, sickness, and I I just couldn't help myself another S, alliteration, sinister opposition. And this is what I want us to focus on this morning. So back up to uh, the, the first three verses again. What, what really is the first of four stanzas in this song, in this hymn. And this shows the, the foundation of confidence and joy from whereby David, David is able to have that, to experience that. The first couple of verses again then, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his fullness, you restore him to full health. That term, considers the poor, we tend to just kind of go right over that, tend to kind of gloss over that. It's, a, again, a very powerful word. He's speaking of those who are weak, helpless, and powerless, and he's saying to give careful consideration, careful thought or attention to their entire situation. Don't just simply run in and offer immediate aid to someone, but carefully consider the needs of that person, whatever their situation might be. That term consider literally means to have a perceptive ability to know the right response in any given situation. We might use the word, I might use the word savvy, to have the ability to know what to do, when to do it, and how to do it, and to be savvy to that. And I want to connect this back to, to last week's message. Look back at chapter 40 and the concluding verse, verse 17, in your Bibles, I don't have it on the screen, David concludes the previous psalm with, As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. 
You are my help and deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Do you see that? God is the model. God is the one who takes careful thought. God is the one who is savvy to our needs because He knows us inside and out. And that's essentially what David starts Psalm 41 with, is saying we need to have that same approach to those who are in need. Steve Corbett wrote a book many years ago called When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. And it's a great read because it talks about the tendencies that we have when we come alongside someone in need. We want to minister to them, but we don't do it carefully. We don't think through the issue. Corbett is, is a quote from Corbett in his book really hits the nail on the head. He says, I sometimes unintentionally reduce poor and needy people to objects that I use to fulfill my own need to accomplish something. Well, David is saying just the opposite. David is saying, be very careful, be very intentional about helping someone, just as God has helped him. The psalmist then goes on, David then goes on in uh, these, these verses to describe things that God does for those who show that kind of mercy. He delivers, he protects, he keeps him alive or preserves him, his life. He calls him blessed in the land. Highly favored in the land. He does not give him up. He does not, does not surrender him to the will of his enemies. He sustains him on a sickbed and he restores him to full health. What I want us to notice here is that David's confidence, his joy, they are founded on God's character. They are founded on the promises that God has given. Not on anything that David brings to the table but on the very character, the very promises of God. Verses 4 through 9 comprise the next two stanzas of this song, of this hymn. And essentially, it's a lament. It's a complaint. In fact, uh, the first six, these next six verses of lament or complaint are, <clears throat> interestingly, are bookended. I want you to notice that they're bookended by a prayer. Look at verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. And then in verse 10, but for but you, O Lord, be gracious to me. There might be a, a template here for how we in turn can pray. Again, the Psalms gives up give us uh, information, give us words that, or vocabulary that we can use to bring our concerns, in this case our lament our complaint before God. But maybe before we do that and after we do that, we should bookend that with prayer, as David himself has done. God's delight creates confidence and joy in the midst of sin. And in David's case, this is triggered by confession. You remember the New Testament passage, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that term in, in John's writing, to confess, literally means <clears throat> to say the same thing. To say the same. It means to be in agreement with what God is saying about us and to say the same thing about us that God says about us. That is essentially what David is doing here. He's crying out for, for grace. He's crying out for mercy, for compassion. He's asking God to heal him. Again, literally to sew together, to mend and restore his life, his health. But he's doing it as a result of, 
understanding that he is, he is a man who has missed the mark. He is a man who has sinned against his Creator and against his lover, Almighty God. He's missed that mark. And so he's confessing, he's agreeing to God that he's in need of forgiveness. He's agreeing with God that I have sinned against you. You know, it's fascinating to me as I was thinking about this over the last several days. We will receive more grace and more mercy from God, whom we have wronged, than from a friend that we have helped. And that is something that you can build your life on. That's something that you can take to heart. We receive more mercy and grace from God, whom we have wronged, than from a friend we have helped. But what's necessary is that we agree with God on that, that we confess to Him who we are and what we've done. Let's move on to the next verse. In, in, in this, this next section, actually, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, we see God's delight over David creates confidence and joy. But now, in the midst of sickness and in the midst of opposition, in verse 5, we read, My enemies say of me in malice, literally, they say of me with evil intent, when will he die and his name perish? They're not just thinking that he's on his deathbed and that he won't recover from the sickness, but they're hoping beyond his own death, they're hoping that his line will become extinct. They're hoping that his name will be eliminated. Uh, that was a very, reputation was a very important aspect of Hebrew culture. And so his enemies are saying, we want to be done with not just David himself, but his entire family. Verse 6. When one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. <laughs> You've got people coming to visit David in his sickness, but they're not coming to really bring encouragement and comfort. You know, who needs friends like that, right? With friends like that, who, who needs enemies? Uh, literally, they are, they are gathering up destructive, worthless, false words. And they're assembling them. They're accumulating that so that they can go out and they can tell it abroad. And the terminology that David uses here in this hymn it is so powerful. It's so to the point. He literally is saying they go out and they... In a calculated fashion, they spread malicious gossip about me. They came to pay me a visit, but really for the purpose of getting information to share against me. And then verse 7. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. Again, a couple of words here, which is just so fascinating to me. This term whisper uh, speaks of muttering an incantation or kind of mumbling a spell. That's what, they're, that's what they're doing as they're whispering among themselves. It's also used on occasion to speak of the hiss of a serpent. Isn't that interesting? They imagine the worst. They literally, they weave together or fabricate the worst for him. They, they plan, they calculate, they invent, they plot, they contrive. And they do it in a malicious way in order to take advantage of his situation. On to verse 8. In verse 8, we read that they say to each other, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. At least that's their hope. Uh, 
this deadly thing. The term there is Belial. Have you heard that word before? We use it of the devil. It's a name for Satan. They're now equating David's sickness, which they hope will end in death, as a very thing of the devil. Amazing. It's interesting. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever felt like you were the brunt of that kind of thought, that kind of feeling, that kind of expression towards you? Boy, I know I have. And in ministry, no less. And without going into a whole lot of gory details, there was a time in our lives decades ago um, ministering in a local church where this very thing happened. And even long after we had left that church, things were still being said about us, even publicly in sermons, without naming my name, yet people knew exactly who was being referenced. And, and all for what? For the purpose of, of bringing together charges that did not exist in order to, to boost themselves in the midst of that very terrible situation. It's not Nice. It's not fun. It doesn't feel very good. And that's exactly what David's expressing here. He's, he's at the, the end of his rope, so to speak, and just at a point where he has only to cry out to God. Now, I want to make sure that we understand clearly what's, what's happening here, because sometimes illness and other forms of suffering, other forms of abuse or persecution, sometimes those come to God's people for various reasons. In fact, Scripture says some suffering is merely the nature of what it means to be human. Job says in Job 5, 7, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. It's kind of like comes with the, with the DNA, right? Paul tells us that some suffering is sent to us by God in order to develop character. Romans 5, 3, suffering produces perseverance. Jesus himself said, in reference to Lazarus in John 11, that some suffering is intended for the glory of God. And again, um, we're not equating David's suffering with his sin, although his enemies were, but we are, uh, we are recognizing the fact that David is in a tough spot. He's in a hard place. Eric, in his prayer, mentioned that there are a group of pastors who meet together every week, on Thursdays, and we go through these messages together, and we share with each other ideas that God has laid on our heart. And one that I had not thought of, but one that was shared Thursday, I want to share with you this morning. And that's what Paul has to say about this kind of suffering. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, I know it's kind of, it's kind of tight on that screen, kind of hard to read, but you can look it up later. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Listen to what Paul says about this. We do not lose heart. Though our elder, outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Finally, in verse... Uh, Nine, this to kind of bring up the, the whole picture of this predicament, this lament, this complaint. 
David says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The term there should be translated, the man of my peace. The the term is shalom. The friend of my peace. The friend who should and would be wishing me welfare and peace has lifted his heel against me. In fact, we even shared meals together. And that was a much more significant part of the Hebrew culture than than in our culture today. It was a very intimate activity that went on between friends, between among family. And this person, he says, has in fact lifted his heel against him. And that's a uh, an idiom for betrayal, for treachery. <laughs> it comes from the idea of an unruly horse who's kicking up at the person who is feeding it. And that's essentially uh, what David is saying. is Even my closest friend, possibly his son Absalom, more likely his, uh, his former counselor Ahithophel, whom David had trusted, has in fact turned his back on him. Now the Psalms are the most often quoted book out of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And as we go through these psalms, we're constantly on the lookout for connections to Jesus. Well, this psalm is easy. Uh, David, in a sense, puts this, puts this up on a T for us. Because in John chapter 13, Jesus himself quotes from this psalm. He quotes from verse 9. The back half, actually, of verse 9. He's at the Last Supper. He's just washed the the disciples' feet, um, and he's sharing that Passover meal with them. And then he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. It's interesting, right? Jesus doesn't quote the first part of the verse about him being my trusted friend. Why? Because Jesus knows everything in the heart of Judas. He knows everything about Judas. Jesus repeatedly claimed that Old Testament Scripture pointed to him and that he must fulfill them. And this psalm is no different. This, this quote is no different. From this psalm, Jesus identifies himself not only with his ancestor David, but he also reveals that Judas's betrayal did not catch him by surprise. Jesus knows what's going on. This has been part of God's sovereign plan from before creation. David concludes this psalm with a... A, a stanza, a three-verse stanza, verses 10, 11, and 12. And it's his affirmation of trust from which he's able to have confidence and joy. Let's read verse 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Now, the last phrase of that verse is a little problematic. And unfortunately, we tend to, in sermons like this, in messages like this, we tend, if we hear it, hear it, we tend to focus in on that. It's like, well, that doesn't make sense. What do you mean? That I may repay them. That doesn't sound very Christian-like, right? I'm going to give you a couple keys that I think will help us unlock an understanding of this. First of all, David is king. He's God's anointed ruler over God's chosen people. I'm not. You're not. So we, we can't totally identify with everything that David is going through here. In fact, this probably refers not so much to personal revenge, but to justice and to vindication. David's intention to repay his enemies 
can be taken as a desire, not as a desire for personal re- revenge, but as a restoration of his position as the anointed king over Israel, designated by God to lead his people. And as a result of that, he's called upon to mete out justice, and in this case, to punish traitors as they deserve. Okay, so that's one key. That's one potential way to unlock this passage. But I find an even more interesting way is in the actual uh, translation of the word repay. When we think repay, we think, I'm going to get back at somebody. I'm going to give them the wherewithal that they've given me, right? The word itself means to make peace with. The word itself means to make whole to restore, to make amends for loss or harm suffered. In other words, to make things right. Wow, I didn't see that the first several passes through this psalm. But I think really what David is asking for is in God's grace that God would, would raise him up from his sickbed as a forgiven man and that he in turn might be able to make things right with those who had abused him, with those who had betrayed him. The last couple of verses, verses 11 and 12, we're, we're back to where we started. We're back to the key, verse 11, that really unlocks this whole passage. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. You have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. This idea of, of being upheld, it, it, it speaks of being grasped firmly to hold on to in, in a fast sort of way. Um, it, it's a picture of holding so tightly to an object that it can't be lost under any circumstances or even direct attack. What does that remind you of? reminds me of Jesus as he's talking about his sheep hear his voice and they follow him and how that they cannot be snatched out of his hand nor can they be snatched out of his father's hand. And when David speaks of integrity, he's talking here about the fullness or the wholeness of his life, that there's no deceit in his life. But he's, in fact, we get our word integrated from this word. His life is integrated. His thoughts, his words, his deeds are integrated. He, he says what he means and then he does what he says. And his words and actions reflect what's in his hearts and mind. That, that's the, the integrity that he's speaking of here. And then finally, David says, and you've, you've set me in your presence forever. Now, very possibly, he's referring back to a, a promise that God gave him, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God is, is responding to David's desire to build a temple, and God says, look, David, I'm going to raise up someone behind you who's, who's going to build this temple, but guess what? This temple is going to last forever. I'm going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David might have had that in mind, and that makes total sense. But in terms of where we sit today, again, we're back to where we live. We, we live in tension in a broken world. We live in the midst of now, but we also are looking to the not yet, to that that we have to look forward to. Um, we live in eternal existence, which if we're in Jesus, we're living eternally right now. But we're living in tension right now in a broken world with anticipation of being with him face to face in the future. So God's delight brings joy and it brings confidence no matter where we are. 
in this present life, but also with promises for the future. The benediction that this is uh, that this psalm concludes with is really uh, what I would call a doxology in community. It's a call to praise, and it's a call for others to join David in praise, being aware of God's great character that we've just read about, his his awesome power, his his grace, his mercy, the promises that he's given. It's an it's an attitude of wholehearted ascribing of goodness to God. And the worth that he deserves because of who he is. It's an outpouring of the recognition of God's essential worthiness within himself. And notice how this, this psalm ends. It ends with those two word, that one word twice. Amen and amen. Do you know what that word means? We oftentimes will throw that word around kind of flippantly like, say amen, brother, right? It means so be it, or indeed, this is true. Um, it, it, it speaks of a stability, a firmness, trustworthiness, reliability. It's similar to when Jesus in the gospel says, truly, truly, I say unto you. It expresses not only agreement, but it also expresses solidarity with what has just been stated. In other words, let me put it this way. When we say amen, essentially we're saying, that's my position as well. And so when we say that to each other, that's what we're affirming. That is my position as well. So my, my encouragement to us this morning is, is let's be confident. Let's be full of exceeding joy, no matter what the con- context is, no matter what the circumstances are. Whether we're wrestling with sin, or we're debilitated by sickness, or we're surrounded by people opposed to us. God delights in us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. It speaks so loudly and so clearly to us in the 21st century, even though it was written thousands of years ago. We are so grateful for your presence this morning, for this opportunity to learn more about you in order to worship you even better. Help us, Father, to take to heart the truth of uh, David's cry for mercy, for grace, and help us, Father, to grow in confidence and to grow in joy, knowing that you delight in us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.